Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining in this week. We have a special guest on. Um, I've been following this doctor for a while now. He's come up with some great information and great guides to handle pediatric care, and that's Dr. Antebi. Um, I have him on the line. We're just going to go over some basic pediatric care and what's the best way to really train and take care of these um, these little people. You know, it's a high-risk, low-frequency situation, so... Without further ado, I'll let Dr. Antevi introduce himself and we'll get started. Hey, Jaron. Thanks for having me. So hi, everyone. My name is Peter Antevi. I'm a an EMS medical director down here in South Florida, privileged to work with over 2,000 EMS professionals. And also, I'm the medical director for two paramedic schools, uh, two, two pretty large ones. And so I have the honor of helping to educate the next generation of uh, paramedics. I'm also a pediatric ER doc by training, so I've been, believe it or not, uh, this coming year will be 20 years in uh, pediatrics and pediatric ER, and in January, it will be a decade in EMS, so time is flying by, but really excited to uh, to be on your show. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, accepting the offer. So uh, with almost 30 years in pediatric and EMS, you can kind of relate with uh, some of our downfalls and how scary it is to be in the back of the truck or show up on scene with the pediatric. Um, You know, the basis of this podcast is really connecting that book to the clinical setting. And I remember my first couple pediatric calls, it's, you know, the firefighter hands over that baby and it's like, wow, I may or may not have trained for this. Um, I know in school they we didn't really go over pediatrics that much. Do you see a lot of downfalls in the clinical training with this high risk, low frequency situation? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you where the problem started. It's we created the problem. Meaning if you think, if you think back to let's say 30 years ago, right. Um, and maybe, maybe not even when we were even old enough or maybe you, you maybe weren't even born yet, but what happened 30, 40 years ago, there was a family practice doctor. They saw the baby and they saw the, the parents and they saw grandma and grandpa. And then what happened is that everything specialized and the healthcare establishment or the medical establishment, the mistake that they made for people like us who do emergency medicine or EMS type care is that they, they've convinced us that the kid who's five is somehow very different than the grandpa who's 65. And over time, now, and I have three three boys now, so I can tell you that, you know, I have my internist, my kids have their pediatrician, and all of a sudden there's all these different specialties. And what's happened in EMS education is that they followed suit and they said, all right, there's these things called adults, and we're going to, out of the 16-month paramedic program, we're going to talk 15 months adult. And then... Every now and again, we're going to sprinkle in this this other thing called pediatrics, and what a huge mistake! What a huge mistake! And um, we we've you know I've, I've spent uh, the last uh, let's say at least five years trying to um, undo what 
the medical establishment has done. And I, and I've been part of that mistake. Now I'm trying to fix that mistake. Um, I, I guess it really depends on your geographic location. I know when I first started EMS, we had a lot more pediatrics. Um, if I knew I was starting in this area that I did now, I wish we spent, you know, half the year on geriatrics. Cause that's, that's my big patient population. You, right. you kind of mentioned the, treating the the children differently than adults you know i think that was the the big stigma um that they're just little adults do you think that's true or not true so for for many years if if anyone came around us pediatric people and said hey kids are just little adults we would we'd get upset with them and now i mean i know for a fact a thousand percent that that's you know they're exactly wrong and i'll tell you why it's because when if you have let's say a, a pediatric condition that needs a specialist let's say you have a rare heart condition of course you want to go to a pediatric cardiologist if you have um if you want your tonsils taken out sure you you probably should go to a pediatric ENT doctor right but when you're in cardiac arrest or when you're having a seizure or when your blood sugar is low there ain't nothing different about the kid and the adult in that situation and so for us for the folks who take care of the critically ill patient at the poolside, uh, who fell off the monkey bars, who, who got into a severe uh, motor vehicle accident, those kids need the same type of care as an adult and the same high quality of care as it's an adult and the same timeliness of care. So if you go in thinking that a kid is different than an adult, you're automatically putting yourself at a disadvantage. You're automatically behind the eight ball and you're going to get on scene. And what people don't realize is if you're mentally not prepared or you're scared because it's a five-year-old rather than a 65-year-old, what you don't recognize about your body language, about how you're going to speak, are you going to look in their eyes or not? Are you, is your heart rate going to be normal on scene? Well, if you're going in mentally unprepared, well, everything's going to go haywire and your first inclination is going to be the fight or flight response. And 90% of your, of your body is going to want to just take that kid, grab it from the parent and then run towards your ambulance or your rescue. And, and then diesel fuel to the hospital, which is exactly opposite of what the kid needs. So I will say, I'll say it here and I'll say it again in EMS and the emergency department, kids should be treated with the same high quality as adults. Yeah, I agree. Um, that that kind of recreates every uh, beginning of a pediatric call. What you said, like either firefighter or the parents are running out, hands you the baby, you treat them with diesel fuel. That's actually what we do in our county is we don't treat them on scene. Um, after talking with you, I think I'm going to try to change that. Just listening to your outlook on all that, I think it should be, you know, take the time and treat them on the scene, um, deliver that best care. I know personally what I do to get rid of that mental block, because initially when I started, I had it. I still do a little bit. You know, it, it kind of scares you that you're working on someone that hadn't even started life yet. But at least if you know the age of the child, you can start writing down your dosages or, you know, preparing yourself on writing down any kind of notes you might need just to have that cognitive offload to get rid of that mental block and have the correct mindset going into this situation. And it turns out, I totally agree with what you just said. It turns out there is one simple thing to do before you get to the scene 
that'll get you most of the way there. And I guess we'll talk about it maybe later, but it's very, very simple and it takes a little bit of practice and you have to go through what I call stress inoculation, which is you go through in simulation and I'm not talking like mega simulation where you have like the $20,000 mannequin. I'm talking like just in a room um, training the right way so that you understand your body, your physiology, you understand what's going to trigger you can remember um, I could, I'll, I'll raise my hand, Jaron, and tell you that when I was, you know, after all my training, I trained at two of the top five children's hospitals in the country. And I, I get to the pediatric ER here where I work in South Florida when I first started my career here. And my hands were sweaty. My heart rate was elevated. And I never understood why that happened until I figured it out. And so now that's what we're trying to teach the rest of the country to understand that is it not that complicated once you understand how to do it? I totally agree. This uh, stress inoculation thing is pretty huge. And I've actually tried to incorporate that into some of my training as well. You know, it's easy to innovate the mannequin as you walk by it, but with a little bit of strobe lights and Metallica, you can definitely start (laughs) irritating people and getting that stress response up. That's right. That's right. I love that. So, um, other than the, you know, the load and go, we can get rid of that stigma. We can stay on scene. What I've kind of thought is that load and go kind of creates more stress. It's more chaotic and we forget to actually take care of the patient. Do you agree with that? We kind of, we're not bagging. We're not making sure the airway, we're just treating with diesel. So we're not even going through our ABCs correctly. Do you kind of agree with that? Oh, and, and that's, and that's been proven. I totally agree with that. And I can tell you that there, there are a number of things that are happening behind the scenes in your brain when you don't stay on scene. Not only is the obvious, like you had mentioned, which is the kid's not getting good quality care, right? The kid's dead, no heart rate, asystole on the monitor, and he needs, you know, quality BVM, needs quality chest compressions with a chest compression fraction that's appropriate with the right depth and the right rate, and they need, so that's great BLS care, and everyone, everyone who's listening to this should to understand how important that is. And then moving to the next phase of ALS care, which is uh, a dose of epinephrine. So put, put, put the fact that the kid is not getting the right care as number one. But then what's happening in the background is the parent who's expecting the hero to come and save their child, what they're seeing is chaos. They understand inherently that if there's chaos here, that means these people don't know what they're doing, right? And then no one te- no one learns how to speak to the family member on scene. And the parent automatically says, why aren't they talking to me? How come that person there who's not involved with treating my child isn't coming talking to me? That's red flag number two. Then you as the EMS professional know that yesterday on the adult code, you stayed on scene for 20 minutes you were talking to the spouse, you got ROSC, everything, post-ROSC evaluation, everything was amazing. And But today on the kid, for some reason, you know that you're not treating the kid the same. So you are telling yourself subconsciously, you're not doing the right thing. You're not doing the right thing. And then you see the parent at the hospital, and we don't teach people how to go up and say goodbye to them appropriately. So all those things coming together lead to not just a disaster in care, but an emotional disaster for both the EMS professional and the parent. And so there's so many kind of 
crashes that are happening at the same time, it all goes wrong when people run off the scene and don't treat the kids. So we, we, we've really focused on changing that. Uh, and we're really proud of what we've done for that. Yeah, I think that's a big thing is definitely the family time. You can just close your eyes and imagine that scene in your head and how chaotic that is. And, you know, the fire, you leave the fire department or first responders behind to talk to the family and they have no idea what's going on. They just know that their job is to scoop the baby up, give it to you and take off. Correct. That leaves a lot of unopened or unanswered questions, a lot of emotion behind with the family. Mm hmm. And yeah. I think everyone can agree when they feel like they just put their cape back on when they get Rosk and an adult and they know how to speak to the family, but they, I guess they don't know how to speak to the family of a pediatric because they are really not sure of themselves if they, if they know what they're doing. You're, you're a hundred percent correct. And, and I can tell you this as a, a very amazing paper, it just got published. Um, I, I put it up on Twitter and it got like just a tremendous response uh, and I'm writing an article about it for EMS World uh, for the December issue about they actually interviewed parents whose children have died. It, this is all the ICU setting, but it definitely translates to us in EMS. And the one thing, the one major thing that the parents want is for people, us, meaning healthcare professionals, to embrace them before, during, and after the death meaning that it's exactly opposite of what 99% of people in this world do today, where if you have the option, let's say you just transported a child, a cardiac arrest, they're still working the kid in the emergency department, and then it's time for, the, for, for you to leave and, and, and go back in service. You have two options. One, you can walk out the big doors and, that says here, go this way, avoid the parent, or you could do the hard thing and go actually talk to the parent and say, Hey, listen, this is what we did when we got to your house. We, we, we made every maneuver to actually get your child back to life. We placed an airway. We were doing great chest compressions. We did, we gave the life-saving dose of epinephrine. And, you know, what that, what that signals to the parent is that their child actually had a, a, a fighting chance that they were treated by professionals, by people who cared. And then that paper said they wanted to be called after two days later by the, the EMS department to check in on them. They want to see the EMS folks at the funeral. So this is the first time ever that we're finally getting insight into what's reality, which is parents aren't going to blame you for their child's death. They want you to understand that this is hard for them and they want you to be there for them through thick and thin. So I think that's a kind of a very important concept that people need to understand. Yeah. I, I I think the family would be more apt to blame you for death if you really just scooped up and went because they don't know what you did. They don't have any idea Correct. if you did anything at all. If you Correct. have a long transport, they're they're really just thinking you drove 15 minutes to the hospital and did nothing. You basically just Correct. put them in a car seat and, and rolled out. Correct. I spent yesterday in the NICU uh, orienting um, for my flight job and just realizing that some of those kids never go home. And how important it is to have that family time and to explain to the family every little thing you're doing. I went to a code APGAR and uh, just the nurses explaining everything that they're doing really put, you could see it in their eyes, put the family at ease. So I think that's a, that's something that needs to be integrated into the, into the care guide, you know, chest compressions, ABC, but also the family time and being able to 
learn how to talk to people. And we've, and we've, we finally have done that. And so now what we do is we, we, tr- we train during our, during our class. We, we, this is something that we, we, we hyper-focus on it. And once you do it once or twice or three times in a simulation setting, um, and then you do it that one time, that very first time on the scene for the easier cases, let's say a kid has a broken arm, you gave some fentanyl, you put a kid in a splint, you transport it. Um, before you leave the ER, you walk up to the mom and you say, hey, Mrs. Jones, just wanted to let you know that uh, little Johnny here is in great hands. I'm so glad that we controlled his pain on the way to the, on the, way to the hospital, and I really hope that you get better soon. Uh, we're wishing you a speedy recovery. And what do you think the parent's going to tell you right after that? They're going to say, thank you. Thank you so much for taking care of my son's pain. You guys were amazing, right? So that that is what I call closure. That's the easy closure. When you did everything right, but you went to the parent and you kind of let them know, not in a braggadocious kind of, hey, look at me. I treated your kid's pain. Um, if someone calls you, make sure you give me a five out of five. You know, you don't do it that way. Yeah. But so, but so once you do it on those cases, then you can get to the harder cases where the kid's not doing well, or there's a diagnosis of cancer, and all of a sudden it's hard to speak to the parents. That's when you really got to rise up and talk to those folks. Yeah, I think that instills confidence in yourself and the family as well. Just being able to offload that emotion on them, and they do the same to you. I think it's just kind of a it's kind of a good bonding time, kind of how we do that in uh, EMS already with the with the mental health issues we have and talking to yep. our partner, but talking to the family could be a, a big help too, especially if that, you know, the child has, you know, a cancer child that had no, no quality of life and you knew you weren't going to get it back anyway. Just having that closure with the family and your partner, I think that does actually better for our mental health. Yeah. That, that, that term you just use is I, I can't stress it enough that every case. So everyone who's listening to this uh, podcast right now should understand that, on every single patient that you run on, you need to get closure on. Even the stub toe, even the patient who's having an anxiety attack. And the way to get closure is by doing all the things right on scene, following the protocol, doing doing you know good good by the patient. And then before you leave the emergency department, you walk up to them, you look them in the eyes, and you say whatever you want to say, but say something to the effect of, I hope you're feeling better. I hope our care was good for you guys. I hope you get home quickly. That that you you now get closure yourself personally, which is more important, and the patient now knows that they've been treated by someone who's so who feels so confident with their skill set that they were able to come to me, and not just for a signature sign here, but find that one or two sentences that you can say to everybody, um, some variation that they understand that you are a professional, you're good at what you do and you care about their well-being. So important. So important. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I pick up a lot of geriatrics, so uh, they definitely appreciate just to get well soon, or I hope to hope to see you soon, or not in this setting. Just a little right. joke or something, just to make them feel better, because they know they're they're sick. So that's definitely, right. definitely something that uh, needs to be harped on a little more. Just overall, just communication and closure. Yeah, and for the geriatric patient, I would say, hey... Uh, while you're in route, hey, do you have any grandkids? Oh, yeah, of course. I got one guy's in North, in North Carolina. One guy lives in New York. He's a, a X, Y, or Z. 
get them talking. They love that stuff. And it, it makes it makes the time go by. They forget about their COPD or their abdominal pain. Um, and they really appreciate that. It's that's what we, we care for people, right? We don't yeah. care for diseases, right? Yeah. Cool. So um, let's talk about probably the one besides the the tone out or the actual call that you are responding to a pediatric, a bad call, a bad pediatric call, not just like a, a simple laceration or something. I think the second most stressful thing is when we, whatever resuscitation device we use, um, but we stretch out that the tape and we start looking for dosages or we start looking for a care guide. We kind of forget everything we ever learned in the textbook and we start relying on these, these little tiny words that, I certainly can't read. I actually have to stare at it a little longer, but converting, you know, dosages and finding what size tube, how can we, I guess, cognitively offload or start resuscitation better than in a panic when we stretch out the, the Braslow tape? Right. And this is a great question. And um, it, it, it took me many years to kind of understand what the problem was here and, and why it had to be fixed. And let me take you into uh, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where I did my pediatric ER training. And one of my mentors is a guy by the name of Bob Hickey. Bob is, when you open up your pal's textbook, it says Robert Hickey as the second author. So Bob is kind of a legend, in my opinion. He was one of my mentors. Um, on, the, on every pediatric code that I work with Bob, Bob would walk in. He would say, hey, Doc, we have an ETA three-minute um, with a five-year-old in cardiac arrest. So Bob says, okay, five-year-old. And within an instant, he would know the dose of epi. He would know the ET tube size. He would know back then when we used atropine, he knew everything. And I said, wow, that's pretty incredible, right? And then I got to Joe DiMaggio to the Children's Hospital in Florida. And I walked into my very first code and none of that happened. They were using a length-based tape. And so I quickly realized that the top children's hospital in this country and the pediatric ER doctors who are who work at those facilities don't use length. They never they don't use a length-based tape. So I knew that there was a problem when the experts in the field were not using the tape. They were using age first and the tape only as necessary. Then when I became a medical director in EMS and I said, okay, the adult, 65-year-old cardiac arrest, and in route, I'm in the back of the rescue and my medics are like, yeah, this, this is pretty simple. You, know, you, you look at them, their heart rate's not increased. They're, they're not sweating. They're just excited because they know the dose. They know the tube size. They know the jewels. Everything is known. So I kind of put those two worlds together and I said, Bob Hickey knew the dose, knew the, the tube size before the kid got there because he didn't use a length-based tape. Why are we pushing the length-based tape on everybody? And it turns out that the length-based tape concept, although when you think about it around the table and you're having, you're having a cup of tea and you're saying, oh, this is a pretty cool idea, um, it may seem like the right idea, but it, it takes away one major component, which is your pre-arrival preparation. You're not able to prepare for the kid like you do for the adult. And so moving to an age-based methodology with a length-based tape backup, right? Because I think it's definitely uh, good to have. Mm -hmm. Totally changes the game. So when I'm on that, when, when I'm en route to a two-year-old cardiac arrest, 
I know that the Epi is 1.2 ml. I know that the IGL is a size two. I know my uh, my defibrillation dosing. I know my normal saline dosing. I know everything, right? Without even having to think, no no tape. And here's the here's the difference maker. When I walk out onto that scene, and the first thing I do is I lock eyes with the parent. That says to the parent, this guy knows what he's doing. And then I come to the scene with my team and we have position one, two, and three, pit crew model, and no one's talking, but the kid's getting bagged, the kid's getting chest compressions, the, the pads are going on, the defibrillator is being, uh, the, the, the monitor is being charged, the eye the gel is going in, the IO is going in, the epi is being administered. No one's talking, no one's panicking. And if you come to any of my agencies in South Florida, and now many across the country that we, who are kind of using this, this methodology, You'll, you'll notice that um, these kids are getting the best care on scene. And I'm not asking for 20 minutes. I'm asking for three good rounds of you know, high-quality ALS care, meaning after the third epi dose is when um, my crews can now leave the scene. Because if they can't get a pulse back after the third dose of epi with very good BLS care uh, as well, then they're, they're probably not going to get this kid back. And so... Um, I hope that answers the question, but I think it really it really points to the fact that we have to start thinking about pediatrics the same as we do adults. Yeah, I think that whole process really comes down to one really good word. As I was listening to you talk, I was kind of running myself through a call, and that's just that cognitive offload. Yes. Knowing how old that kid is and knowing all of these dosages already. Now, if I want to write them on a piece of tape on my leg, that's fine. But everybody in that truck is who you're going to be talking to. So you can already run through that being, you know, this kid's 20 kilograms. This is the dose. This is the size. And just having that non-chaotic, nice, easy walk into the scene, that definitely instills in confidence in yourself, your partner, and in the family. And just having all that put together, I think that would really help out the care of that pediatric um, making sure at least, you know, not the load and go, but staying to at least you get the ABCs controlled. At least you figure out what's wrong with the child. Are you freaking out? Right. And, you know, you didn't even get a story from the mom and you realize that there was a grape occluding the airway. You get the grape out, a couple compressions and the child's good as new. Right. You might miss that if you, right. if you don't, you know, offload all this information and you're just chaotic. So. I, I, I agree. And there was a paper that was just published in resuscitation it's a, it's a very premier journal in, uh, in February 2019 by an agency who uses the methodology in Polk County, Florida. And in 2012 and 2013, Jaren, they had zero uh, – out of 38 children, none of them survived. They you know, all deceased. And then in 2014 and 15, they had 13 kids neurologically normal, then 17 kids – in 2015 uh, and 16, neurologically normal. So they have 30 children who are playing soccer today, not because of a new medication, not because of anything different. It's because they stayed on scene, they, they engaged the family, they did the right thing by the child, and everything went well. Yeah. They actually treated the patient, didn't just load and go. That, that's pretty amazing yeah. stats, yeah. actually. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and uh, that, 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 that should be... Uh, 
I think that everyone should read that paper and look into it because there's no additional cost to that. You just have to train on it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Which is something that we we don't do a lot just because we don't we don't deal with pediatrics a lot. Um I guess I don't know of, you know, certain agencies or towns that strictly deal with pediatrics other than specialty teams, but in your normal everyday setting, you're probably only looking at maybe 10 to 20% and a lot of them are going to be trauma related. I wouldn't say so much as uh, being sick or cardiac arrest, but you got to be prepared for these situations. I was not re- prepared on my first one. I'm glad I was in orientation when it happened because I was a mess. No one actually taught me how to resuscitate a pediatric. You know, you just read the chapter, take a test, and and that's it. And I think it's really important just to know all these tips and tricks so you're fully prepared to walk into this situation, take control not be stressed. It's okay to have a little stress. It's a stressful job, but don't let that stress override your, your cognitive ability to actually take care of a patient and talk to the family and give the best care you can give. That's what you're trained to do is to treat that patient and not, not be just a a mess, you know? Yes. Yes. And we're actually uh, just, just a little uh, information for those who are listening that uh, EMS world expo, which is coming up next month, I'm going to be running a two-hour seminar on high-performance CPR and pediatrics with my team from Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, and uh, it, it's capped. Uh, the, the total number of people who are, are going to be allowed to come in is capped, but we're looking to go over all of these things that we just talked about, but in very, very specific detail. Um, and again, you don't have to be a 30-year medic to understand what we're talking about. This is for the brand new medic all the way to the person who's about to retire because it's just, it's very basic, but it just needs to be uh, understood and learned and then put into practice in real life. And that, that's the best way is to just to keep training, and especially for people that know what they're doing with research that has actually showed it's worked and you guys haven't. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you.